Before we get started, I'm proud to announce that more than 20,000 users are now using the Business Made Simple University platform. That is a platform with a series of courses that help you grow a business. You know, it's not fair that you would pay for a college education and still not know how to grow a business. That is not fair and it's not right. For pennies on the dollar, you can just get a pass to Business Made Simple University, and we are always adding new classes. In fact, we are launching Hero on a Mission, my life planning and productivity course that comes out right around Thanksgiving. In February, we are launching Negotiation Made Simple, where the guy who taught me to negotiate, John Lowry, he teaches a negotiation course at Pepperdine Law. He's also the development director at Lipscomb University. I've taken his course three times. He's made and saved me millions of dollars. Now we're bringing him to you inside the platform. If you are looking to develop yourself, consider Business Made Simple instead of going back and getting an MBA. You can do it at your own time and again for pennies on the dollar. Just go to businessmadesimple.com and we will teach you everything you need to know to grow a business. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller, and later I'll be joined by my co-host, Dr. DJ Peterson, where we will be discussing today's interview. Do you feel like an overwhelmed parent to your kids or your colleagues? After today's episode, you might come to find your parenting and leadership strategies are completely backward. Listen, I had one of the most meaningful conversations we have ever had on this podcast. I would consider it life transforming for me. It was with Hal Runkle. Hal is a life and leadership coach as well as the New York Times bestselling author of Scream-Free Parenting, How to Raise Amazing Adults by Learning to Pause More and React Less, as well as Scream-Free Marriage and Choose Your Own Adulthood. We talk about where parenting and leadership overlap, which is probably 90%. If you've been looking for a perspective on how to lead your team and lead your kids, this is going to be an informative interview. Again, JJ and I will discuss it later, but here's my conversation with Hal Runkle. Hal, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, man. You know, as I grew my company, one of the many things that surprised me was the more team members I added and the more conversations we had and the more complications we had to work through, the more I felt like I was a parent and not just the owner of a company. And I confess to you, I tried to separate the two. I tried to say, look, it's not my job to be a parent. It's not my job to be a dad. Sure. I just own a company. And the more I separated those two, the worse the situation got. <laughs> And then I would also add that as I was interacted with with my team members, the less they acted like a parent to me at times, the worse things got. Because at times, you know, if you run a company, at times you're being led by the people who you've chosen to lead you, right? Absolutely. And yeah. so it goes both ways. And so I want to explore, you have a framework called Scream-Free Parenting. It's adapted so well to leadership. In fact, I wouldn't surprise me if you were sought after more in leadership these days than you are on parenting. But I want to get into it. And, and the real okay. key to the whole thing is stopping emotional reactivity before it causes damage. That's the foundation of the whole thing. From a leadership business owner perspective, can you tell me how running a business and being a parent, where the Venn diagram overlaps? I love that. And all the stuff I've done, I've never been actually in an interview where we wanted to mix those two as well as you just said. Because the last time, it's just difficult for leaders to feel like they are parenting without feeling like they are babying. Right. And I don't mean it that way. I mean you, that. Exactly. You don't. The deal is good parenting is leadership mm -hmm. and good leadership is good parenting. We say parenting and have a bad connotation because a lot of our experience with our own parents or our own parenting was not very good at all. But our whole point of raising kids is to not raise kids. It's not even think of them that way. A whole point is to raise adults. Well, you think about it, a leader in a company, your job should not be to keep everyone as small and safe for as long as possible. You should be working to grow all of your leaders so that they can do more and more without you. And that's the job of parenting as well. But we've forgotten it. 
let's talk about the awkwardness of those semantics, right? It feels condescending to the people who I work with that I would say I need to parent them. Right. At the same time, the dynamics are overwhelming. I remember the first, and this is going to be me being really vulnerable, but one of the first Christmases we had, my wife and I went and kind of bought Christmas presents for the staff and really went all out. And there was not even a thank you letter in response. And there rarely is. That and, felt and, like and parenting. It felt like parenting. I mean, it really yeah. did. It felt like, wow. And I remember thinking, this is how parents must feel when you know, you're sort of expecting this reciprocal thing. But the people that are on your team, they don't think of you as somebody who needs anything reciprocal whatsoever. No. And that was a major punctuated evolution growth for me as a leader to realize, oh, you're going to be treated differently when you are perceived this way. It just creates some awkwardness. Here's a through line that I think helps. And this is the way that we define parenting and have done at Scream Free for a long time. And it's the way I work with leaders now is what children need most are parents who do not need them. That is so freeing when I hear you say that. I don't need you to respect me. I don't need you to obey me. I don't need you to reciprocate with a thank you note. I don't need any of that from do I want that? Sure. But do I need it? No. And that's a wonderful perspective as a leader of anything, is getting to the place where you don't need your people to give you anything in return other than what's best for them and the system that we're trying to build. You know, it's interesting. I was set up with a um, counselor, a therapist who does high-end executive sort of coaching, but from a psychological perspective. And she, you know, day two of this really intense series of conversations, she said, you know, is there anything else you need to work on? And I said, you know, there's just one thing. I said, this bothers me, and I'd love to get your perspective on it. Occasionally, and by occasionally, I mean daily, somebody shoots at me on Twitter, right? I mean, they just shoot some sort of criticism. And it just, I take it too personally, I think. And I'm looking for a perspective where I don't do that. And her answer, I'm not kidding. This is a clinical psychologist, you know, who's been doing this for 40 years. Her answer is it's par for the course. Like you literally need to get over it because you are a leader sure. and you're going to be shot at. And she almost said, it's actually fair for you to be shot at. That's not an injustice. It struck me as so, there was such a chasm between her perspective and mine. And can you elaborate on that as it relates to parenting? Parents just don't need to need that from people. And, and you know, if you were Think about how what an awful president you would be if you cried yourself to sleep every night because the press is criticizing you, which I think our current president might be doing that. But People but, didn't like you? Yeah, because people didn't like you. Help us all you know, experience what I experienced, that punctuated evolution of, I don't know if it's strength or what it is, where you just decide, no, I'm the leader and the rules are different. Well, the technical term for it is differentiation. And it's this differentiation between what I need and what I want, differentiation between what I feel and what I think, differentiation between me and other people. And what I've just found, it all comes down to my ability to manage myself directly leads to my ability to lead others. You talked about language earlier. The precision of language is really what I focus on a lot. Simply, do I need that from you? No. Do I want that from you? Yes. But one of the things that we think is that we deserve it. Yes. That's where we get into trouble. I did this for you. I've given you a job. I'm paying you money. So I deserve your appreciation. And if that's the case, then you shouldn't be in leadership role. With the same thing that if that's the case that I'm going to take everything personally, that any criticism lobbed at me, then it makes me really difficult to be in that position as well. And so what does it look like for us to get to the place where I love how your therapist talked about it is it's not only going to happen, it should, right? It's supposed to, and we're supposed to be able to handle it because that's our job is to handle it. And the world needs a leader. The world needs so many leaders. And it needs that kind of leader. It needs a leader that's not riding the emotional roller coaster of whether or not they're getting fed. To her point, I'm paid more than you know, anybody on my staff, I get accolades on Amazon reviews. I get, you know, it's nitpicky for me to say, well, I want everybody to, you know, it doesn't really work out. Okay. So healthy parenting, healthy leadership, very similar. I'm going to go through eight strategies that you've outlined in some of your books about parenting that I think overlap with 
leadership. A lot of it has to do with creating space for your children or creating space for the people that you're working with. The first is respect their space and privacy. Can we go through both? How do you do that as a parent? And then how does it overlap with leadership? Well, think about that differentiation. It comes to realizing that as soon as they are out into the world, they are not us. They are not an extension of us. They are not a reflection of us. We feel that they are. We feel that our employees are. But when we start off with this sense that you're attached to me, you're an extension of me, then we're going to take everything you do personally. And we're going to be easily embarrassed or offended by the things that you do. And that's not giving them any sort of space to begin to occupy a separate life from us. And so what we have to do is recognize my job is not to make you behave. My job is not to manage your behavior. And this is one of the biggest fallacies in parenting and in leadership. I don't know. I hate that we call it management. My daughter just graduated from Lipscomb there in Nashville with a degree in business management. But the reality is the only thing you manage is you Hmm. because you can't manage someone else's behavior. But we buy that lie as soon as we have kids, right? We buy that lie that says my job is to make them behave. And so, you know, the first kid, you go out and you get one of the million parenting books that promise the system of rewards and punishments. And uh, you've got literally it's like training a dog. They treat it like training a dog. Yeah. And you've got charts on your refrigerator with check boxes for accomplishments, you know, and, and little prizes and stuff. Now, you don't do it with the second kid because it doesn't work, but you're really <laughs> going to do it with the first kid, right? My kid is going to be different. Yeah. And then they thwart the whole system with one word, no. And you're flipping, I didn't see that coming, but it's, here's the thing. And this is for parents and for leaders is the most frustrating part of leading anybody is that they have a mind of their own and you can't make them do anything. And this is so shocking to parents. Oh, I'm going to make my kid do their homework. Really? Without his cooperation? No, you're not. So telling a kid what to do all the time, telling an employee what to do all the time, micromanaging in that way is not giving them space, but you're still expecting them to make a good decision. Because if I tell a kid, don't do that, who decides whether or not he does it? It's still the kid. And so in the same thing, if I tell you a task to do, who decides whether or not to do it? They do. Now, my biggest client over the last 15 years has been the U.S. military. And I've gotten to train over like 2,500 family professionals throughout the military. I just, I was just at Fort Bragg last week. And they do still have this sense that hierarchy will create loyalty. And what we're going to do is command and control, and I'm going to tell you what to do, and they don't have a choice. But they always have a choice. They could go AWOL if they want, but we always have to respect the fact that they have the space to make decisions for themselves. And that's the whole point. So the obvious question is, how do you get a child to do what you need them to do when they could run into the street? They could jump off the roof, or if you're dealing with the military— they could get into enemy hands. They, you know, there's, it's, I mean, I think there are people who are listening and pushing back saying, I believe you, but at the same time, it just doesn't seem like it's going to work when it needs to work right. at some point. So listen to your language. Okay. How do we get them to do what we need them to do? Right now, remember we said, what kids need most are parents who do not need them. But when we get down to a kid's level, I need you to get dressed on time. Who's in charge now? They are. Because whenever you're in need, the other person has an advantage. Just like, you know, if you're trying to buy a used car first week of the year, you're in a bad spot. You do it the last week of the year, you're in a good spot because they need it more, the deal more than you do. Let me spitball here. Is it saying, you know, to maybe my team, we're really trying to grow this team or this company. Here's our mission. In order to accomplish our mission, I think everybody needs to make, uh, or the sales team needs to make 100 calls a week. Right. Do that voluntarily if you like. I mean, aren't we just playing semantics at that point? I mean, we need we need for everybody in the boat to row at the same time in the same cadence or we're going to lose this race. It feels like we're tricking people into thinking that it's their idea, but really we're the leader with the vision and the strategy and the plan and we're asking people to adapt to that plan. Am I wrong? And how am I not tricking them into doing it? Well, first of all, semantics, I don't believe they're semantics actually exists. We have an, a, million, a huge vocabulary in the English language for a reason, and we choose our words because of the meaning we have attached to them. And changing word, for instance, I should have done that versus I could have done that. That changes everything about that perspective. I need to do that versus I want to do that. So one of the things I'm working with in the Army now is a different leadership paradigm that they have stated they've endorsed, 
and embrace, but they actually don't practice it. And it started with this, this me and this major, uh, he was a trained at the war college and we're, I always had this question, how did it take five times the number of allied soldiers to defeat the Germans? What made the German army so successful despite how small, much smaller they were? And he said, well, it's because they had a different way of looking at mission. You were just talking about, we have this mission and therefore you need to do this and this and this. The Germans wouldn't go that far. They practiced something you can look it up called Auftragstaktik. And the army has actually embraced it. They don't practice it. And it's this basically, look, you need to get to that French town by sundown. And I'm not on the ground with you. I don't know how you're going to figure that out, but I trust that you will. And then figure it out on the road. So if they had instructions to their leaders that were more than one page, they started over. As opposed to the U.S. when they landed in North Africa, their instruction manual was larger than the Sears Roebuck catalog. You couldn't go to the bathroom without approval. <laughs> that kind of micromanagement was built into it, and they wondered why it got bottlenecked all the time. So what we need to do is not delegate tasks. We need to delegate the anxiety. Like, I'm not sure how we're going to do this. I am absolutely sure that we got the right people in the room. And that what that does is it calls them up to, first of all, feel the anxiety of the mission itself instead of just thinking only about their particular task. But also what it does is it, it speaks to them that you believe in them, that you believe they can do more than what they have done up to this point. Yeah, you're giving ownership. And unless people have some sense of control and even real control of their lives, it creates morale problems, it creates mental health problems when they're truly being micromanaged. And people will comply, but compliance is sometimes the greatest form of resistance because it's the quickest way to get rid of you. Exactly. Uh, so I'm with you on that. Let's get down to some practical solutions from your perspective, Hal, and we can translate this in our own minds into leadership. You've got a 13-year-old. They haven't done their homework in two weeks. The teacher calls and says... You know, Johnny is just not turning in their homework. Not turning work, sure. You're walking up to their room. Tell me what that conversation looks like with Johnny from your perspective. Let's just speak hypothetically, of course. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I did have a 13-year-old son at one point. <laughs> Who didn't do his homework. <laughs> yes, right. And first of all, my number one thing is my job is to be in that room and in that conversation, the lowest heart rate. So you go in, this is really fascinating and helpful. You go in thinking more about how to control yourself and your emotions than controlling Johnny. Because I can't control Johnny. It's just not going to happen. It's never going to happen. That and sounds like parent... the most freeing way to live I've ever heard of. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> unbelievable. When you recognize I have zero control over what anybody else does. Or your spouse or your Absolutely. son or your daughter or your team or whatever. Exactly. I don't have to try and manipulate anybody to try and get them to do what I need them to do. I just got to manage me no matter what. That's my number one job. So when I'm coaching people, coaching a leader, so I have several actually business owner clients in Nashville where you're at. And when COVID hit, I got a lot of phone calls about how do we tell people they're being fired or how do we tell people, right? And when they actually did it and they called me and my first question is always, how do you think you did? My question is not, how did they receive it? My question is, how do you think you did on the part that you could control? Did you represent yourself well? Did you stay calm? Did you actually present it and then listen? Because those are the only things we can control. So that's my first thought going up the stairs is no matter what, I've got to be the lowest heart rate in the room. And I'm trained as a therapist. I was a licensed therapist for a long time and a conflict mediator. And that's what they need from me in that situation as well. I got to be the calmest one because here's and this. I have little pithy sayings and I apologize. They're sometimes cheesy, but I try and make them memorable. Like when you are calm and present, you become a calming presence. You actually get to influence instead of control. And I see those as opposites. So you go in there with Johnny and you're saying, hey, I, I can't control Johnny. I need to control myself. I want to stay calm in this situation. The reality is Johnny has chosen not to do his homework there are some consequences that Johnny is going to have to face for doing that. Is your job then just to more or less tell the truth to Johnny so that he understands it and let him make a decision? Am I learning here? Yes. <laughs> Am I, I getting I better? <laughs> All day long, every one of us faces choices with time limits and consequences. All day long. That's the life I'm preparing my kid for. So I love how you just tell him the truth. Tell him here's the situation. But even before I get there, I'm just going to ask him. Ask him what's going on. 
ask him whatever else might be happening. Go in also with the assumption that he wants to do well. People do not wake up wanting to really screw their lives up and not do anything to promote themselves. They don't do that. There are some other thing going on. But eventually what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a meeting with the teacher and Johnny. One of the biggest mistakes parents make is having a parent-teacher conference without the kid in the room. And what that is, is each of you are, are blaming the other. Figuring out how to control Johnny. Exactly. When neither one of you can. The only person who can change his behavior is him. And so you talked about very first giving them space. I'm going to give them space to make certain decisions. And every age they grow, I'm going to give them more and more space to make those decisions. And does that mean they're going to be tasting larger consequences as they go on? Yes, because my job is to prepare them for life beyond me. That's the whole point. I tell parents, parent in such a way that by the time they're a senior in high school, they have no rules from you whatsoever. Because it's a wonderful dress rehearsal for the following year when you have no idea what they're doing when they're off at school. They have to make up their own curfew. They have to decide for themselves, how am I preparing them for that? And so in a company, if you're not actively trying to give people more and more decision-making power and the consequences that sometimes can come with that, if you're not doing that, then you don't really want humans as employees. And this is what I told a two-star last week at Bragg. You want more and more drones. You want mm. people to just be happy in the assembly line and never wanting to raise beyond their status. But nowadays, they're going to see themselves as a free agent. They're going to leave. So what they need from us is that I believe that you are capable of making better decisions than you are making now. And I'm going to keep believing that. And I'm going to expand that space. But the way we talk about it, though, is there is space and then there is place. Space is the areas over which you have control. Place is where that stops. So, for instance, getting really practical here, you've got a toddler, right? You've got to take to preschool. And you've been fighting this and you've done the daddy really needs you to get you, right? And said, hey, dude, in 10 minutes, we are leaving for preschool. You do not have a choice as to whether we're leaving or when. So I'm going to set a timer on the microwave and it's going to happen. Now, guess what, though? You get to decide how we get in the car. That is completely up to you. And I'm completely okay. So there's option A and there's option B. Option A is the timer goes off. And you are dressed, and we walk hand in hand. No, we skip happily down the driveway to the car, and then we listen to, with my kids, it was Barney on the way there. <laughs> Great. Way back when. Or option B. What's option B? Well, option B is the timer goes off, and you fight me, right? So I pick you up, and you do that spider thing where you're out of the house, you're grabbing everything in the house to try and prevent us from leaving. And then when we get to the car seat, you're going to do this plank thing, you know, with your body. And I'm gladly going to push down on your pelvis and get you strapped in the car. And then we're going to listen to the Beatles. And I'm okay with either option because my job is not to make you behave. My job is to help you be, get better at managing your behavior. If there's one piece of this that really is the mindset shift, it is, it's not my job to manage my kids' behavior. It's not my job to manage my employees' behavior. It's my job to help them learn to manage their own. If you could clarify something for me, because of that paradigm shift makes so much sense. At the same time, you are walking the kid out of the house and pushing down on their pelvis to get it on the seat and taking them to preschool. So help us delineate. Sure. Parenting is obviously different in this sense yes. than leadership, yes. right? Yes, but, it is. You know, because at some point you might just have to let somebody go. If they're just saying, True. well, I'm not going to make any sales calls at all. You got to find another position for them in the company or you got to say, well, you can't be a salesperson here. And that's sometimes the worst part of parenting because you wish yeah. you could fire your kids. <laughs> and I'm sure they wish they could fire us. Oh, they will. <laughs> and would have a million times. But really, though, what's the line on I'm going to take you to school and essentially I'm going to make you go to school? Help us understand just that delineation. So here's a way to get there is we have to learn okay, what am I responsible for and what am I responsible to? Hmm. If there's any amount of genius I stumbled upon in writing the first book, it was this idea that you're not responsible for your kids. And I knew it would sound controversial because it sounded that way to me. But when I'm responsible for them, then again, it's my job to do everything for them. And so usually I find employers don't 
err on the side of doing too little. I see them getting, you know, they're type A's, they're CEOs, they're usually oldest children, and they're used to making people behave in a certain way. And this is about finding a middle ground between those two things. It's not, hey, do whatever you want, but it's not, hey, do everything I tell you to do. It is, I've got to find a way to give you more space, but I also have to be very clear as to what happens outside of that space. You are not allowed to do this without severe consequences. And it, it brings up an interesting difficulty in parenting is we always want to set boundaries. We're always heard about setting boundaries. The problem is you can't set boundaries on another person. I can literally put my son in a place in the yard with a fence around it, but that doesn't guarantee he won't knock down the fence or at least try. The boundaries are what am I willing to do in response to their behavior? So the boundary is always on me. And sometimes I want to not intervene to see how they're going to do. Now, does this mean I'm going to let a two-year-old play in the street by letting him taste the consequence of getting hit by the car? No. Does it mean I'm going to take a first-year employee and put them in charge of the biggest deal we've ever had? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to strategically, hopefully, give them more and more of that responsibility for themselves because that's my responsibility to them. If you have scaled a business and you find yourself coaching other people on how to grow their business, consider becoming a Business Made Simple Certified Coach. You can apply at CertifiedBusinessCoach.com. What's the difference between a Business Made Simple Certified Coach and any other business coach? Well, the Business Made Simple Coach actually has frameworks that they can teach their clients to help them grow their business. They aren't just cheerleaders establishing goals and then keeping people accountable. They do that, but they do so much more. They start with the hero on a mission life plan, giving the client a life plan. Then they help them clarify their message. Then they help them create a marketing sales funnel. Then they help them become a great communicator. Then they help them learn to manage people. Then they learn to help them start an execution framework. Then they can teach a sales framework. Then they can teach on and on and on. In fact, the Business Made Simple Certified Coach is given 50 scripts, that is 50 sessions that they can have with a client that guide them through the frameworks that help them grow their business. If you meet with a client every week, that is one year. If you meet with a client every other week, that is two years worth of material. If you turn it into a mastermind, you can actually have 10 or 20 clients in the room and we give you the mastermind instructions that help you run those masterminds so that clients are sure to get the most out of your coaching. You can use our frameworks in combination with your own coaching, or you can just trust our frameworks to help you scale up your client's business. If you spend most of your time wondering, what am I going to talk to my client about next? We have solved that problem for you. Just go to certifiedbusinesscoach.com. That's certifiedbusinesscoach.com and apply today. And soon you can become a business made simple certified coach. Once again, certifiedbusinesscoach.com. This may overlap a little bit with point three. Point one was respect their space and privacy. Point two, calm your anxiety about their messy room. Uh, Point three, respect their choices. I think that goes into your son. You can choose between listening to the Beatles and fighting me, or we can listen to Barney and so on and so on. So we may have covered that. It all reminds me of, as you were talking, how long has it been since you've seen the movie Hoosiers with Gene Hackman? Uh, since I've seen it maybe 35 times, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think I've watched it in a while. But yeah. I just watched it for the first time in maybe 10 years. It's one of those movies every five years you can just pull it out and it feels like a brand new movie. Absolutely, yes. But that, that's the transformation he experiences in that movie. I mean, they, he has a tantrum at the beginning of the movie where he sits down with his team And he says, you're going to do things exactly how I tell you to do them. And you're not going to ask me any questions or you're off this team. And in one of the final scenes of the movie, I don't want to spoil it, but where they beat the other team to win the national or the uh, state championship. Jimmy Chitwood, baby. Jimmy Chitwood. He says, we're going to decoy and Jimmy Chitwood is not going to take the shot. And the team just looks at him really upset. And he says, you guys want Jimmy to take a shot. And Jimmy says, coach, I think I can make the shot. And coach says, okay, we're going to do it your way. I'm behind you. Let's go. And he, and he pumps him up. That is the scene that is designed in the screenplay to mark the transformation of the hero from a control freak to a collaborative coach who actually Leader. trusts in the agency of the people who 
He's parenting. Now you're speaking. Yeah, now you're speaking my language because <laughs> I'm writing a whole new book on this thing about responsibility because I think we're in the midst of a huge responsibility crisis, and no one wants to take it because we've misunderstood it. And responsibility without agency is tyranny. Mm. And so that agency, giving mm. them agency—that is so good. Responsibility without agency is tyranny. And by the way, agency is just a fancy word for giving them power. If I have agency, I have power. Right. It's capability. And what it means is you have choices that you can make. And I'm handing you those choices and I'm going to empower you how to make good choices, but I'm going to let you make those choices. And I've gone around the world. I've gotten to speak in 20 countries, every single culture, race, nationality, they all want the same thing in terms of parenting. We want a 25 year old who can make good decisions. Hmm. Everybody wants that, but getting them to that point is messy and scary because they might make the wrong decisions. Yes, they might. How point number four is going to be counterintuitive along with point number five. I think we can talk about both of them at the same time. Point number four is this. Calm your anxiety by giving up your need to know how they feel. That's interesting. And then number five, give up your need to know why. Can you explain why we don't need to know how Johnny is feeling? Because Johnny doesn't know. In other words... They may not understand it fully, and we don't need to make up a narrative here. Some things are just a mystery. But that's what we're trying to do. I mean, that's the whole fascination in our culture with conspiracy theories, for instance. We're trying to make up a narrative that has a solid through line that makes total sense. Right. And we want that, right? We want that. Yeah, JJ talks about it all the time. It's actually called narrative transportation, and it's where a narrative has more power in your mind than the facts to determine what you are going to believe is true. In other words, if you believe a story, and I just experienced this in a political conversation recently, where I said, well, the facts are this, and they would not accept those facts because the narrative was so powerful. There's a great philosophical thing, that was my first degree, and so I still love it, called the Procrustean Bed, the Bed of Procrustes. It was this king who would invite people over to his house, and they could stay the night if they could fit inside the bed. So he would lay them on the bed and they would have to extend out like this, their arms and legs, and whatever didn't fit within the confines of the bed got cut off. And so it became this idea that we have this narrative of how things are supposed to be and whatever exceptions to that narrative, we just cut them off as exceptions rather than informing the narrative. We do it with our kids whenever we label them. It's another way we restrict space. It's one of the reasons why, and I'll get in trouble for this, I always have, I don't like personality profiles. Because it's reducing the huge motion picture of a personality to one still picture and one data point. So I'm a three or I'm an otter and I can't do this and that we use it as this limiting thing. Instead, I'm going to give you more choices with more agency, which leads to more ownership. So I think more capability leads to more culpability where people are willing to actually take the ownership for their actions. And that's responsibility, is learning to figure out what am I responsible for and what am I not? Do I have choices within that? And I can take full ownership of whatever happens and whatever consequences. That's just what we don't see enough of in leadership, but that's what I'm hoping my children grow up to do. I want them to take full responsibility for all their choices. In fact, one time my daughter... They had to watch me on TV and stuff, preach this stuff forever when they were growing up. But I called her. She was 12. I traveled a ton for a long time, and I I missed a piano recital. And I said, hey, hey, how'd it go? Which piece did you play? How do you think you did? And I said, man, I wish I could have been there. She was like, what? Well, I I wish I could have been there. She's like, no, you don't. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Dad, if you wanted to be here, you would have been here. <laughs> she's like, she's not upset. I said, I'm not upset. Yeah. Just don't, just don't lie. Don't you always say take full responsibility for all your choices? I'm like, yes. Right. You could have said, I wanted to be in both places. There you go. Exactly. Which is probably how you actually felt. You wish you. Could yeah, I should have. You should have used that line. But she did call you. She called you. She off. did. <laughs> well, it sounds like you raised a good kid. <laughs> They've done that uh, many, many times. I hate it when they quote me back to me. Well, real quick, because I don't want to pass up point four and five. Okay. Yeah. If my wife and I are in a discussion, it's certainly not a bad question to say. Can you tell me how you're feeling about this? No. That's not. not a bad question. But you're just saying we're not responsible to get to the bottom of it or to help them figure out how they feel. Have they asked us for that help? Right. It's not honoring their agency. No, it's not honoring their agency. Okay, well, that gets right into point six. Let them struggle. Let them struggle. And that's the delegate the anxiety. 
I remember talking to a business owner in Nashville, actually, and he was saying, look, I, I just don't want my people worrying about that. So I said, well, what do you want them worrying about? Because if you think it's your responsibility to make sure they have nothing to worry about, that's like saying, I'm going to do all of their workouts for them, but hope they gain muscle. Not going to happen. Right. Boy, that's a great analogy. That's the responsible for mindset. And here's the problem. When you take responsibility for someone else's process, someone's growth, someone's outcomes, someone's feelings, you actually take responsibility from them. And then you complain that they don't grow enough to take responsibility. So I'm failing in my responsibilities to my people when I'm trying to protect them from bad news. Your mayor, and I don't even know his political affiliation, it doesn't matter, but when he had to announce the city of Nashville had to raise taxes in order to pay for all the emergency stuff in order to deal with the pandemic, mm -hmm. I was blown away by that moment of leadership where he just said, look, I don't want us to have to do this, but we got to do it. Now, he was clever enough to point, now I'm going to raise taxes. There's still going to be less than my predecessor, which was a smart <laughs> political move, but he was just telling the truth. And one of the great things about leaders is they can tell the truth, tell bad news in a way that people can actually tolerate. Well, especially if you give them the truth and trust that they are responsible enough to understand it. Exactly. Exactly. And be totally willing to have them be upset with you. You were talking earlier about, you know, you want the reciprocal, you want them to like you. One of the great things to do when you are giving bad news, consequences for an employee or a child, you say, look, and I understand if you're upset with me. Yeah. Well, that's point number seven. Allow your kids to disagree with you and learn to respect their argument. I would say it's a sign of a leader who hasn't quite matured, I'll say it as kindly as possible, when their team simply cannot disagree with them. I mean, they, they just don't feel comfortable ever doing it. Pushing back is what we call it. I've got a president here who has really initiated in our company a healthy pushback challenge. And that is literally sessions where we just sit and push back against our ideas and people. And, you know, of course, we always iterate into better ideas, but that's actually not why he wants to hold healthy pushback challenges. He wants to hold healthy pushback challenges because he wants everybody to understand they have agency. Yes. That, that their voice and their disagreement and their dissent actually matters and can help this company evolve. When it first came on, I was like, I'm not interested. <laughs> you go to the healthy pushback challenges and you tell me what the results are. <laughs> I've evolved as a leader, How You would be proud of me. No, there you go. Well, we used to joke about it in when, back when I had a company and we had about 11 people at the kind of our height and now it's just me and that's the way I prefer it. But back then we used to have, you remember Festivus from Seinfeld? Yes, of course. Yes, you know, the holiday for the rest of us. And they had the airing of grievances when they brought yeah. out the poll. We would do that. That's good. Let's have a Festivus <laughs> session. But it, it led to a principle that I think I've taught far better than I've practiced, but that approachable leaders have coachable followers. Hmm. The more you can signal to them that they can come to you with anything and you will absolutely respect it. And listen, this doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but you need to respect it because that helps them in this sense of agency. And when you do disagree with them, it helps them tolerate that disagreement a lot more. But you want to convey in everything. And, and non-reactivity is the first way you do it. Somebody comes to you, criticizes you, huh, and one of the great challenges that leaders have, and this is what I, when I'm working with a leader is, okay, someone gave you this criticism, da, 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 da. is there one aspect of it that was true? It could have been totally laden with terrible language and huge, huge assumptions. Is there one thing? And it's amazing. You will disarm them and empower them by saying, you know what? I don't agree with all of that, but there was that one piece that you brought up that I think is really good and it's going to help me grow and help us as a company. So thank you for that. Now, I don't agree with the rest of it, but I want to thank you for that. They don't know what to do with that. They're right. disarmed, but you've earned their respect. All right. Your final point, point number eight, is also provocative in the way it's said here. Rarely look your kids in the eye when talking with them. I have no idea where that's going, but I'm sure it's something profound. The only people you can look in the eye and have it come away as a really positive outcome is when you're equals. But when you are in a clear hierarchical position above them, staring them in the eye is going to come across as very, very intimidating. Also, oh, this is literally just a tactic to help us be more kind and understanding. Well, and also 
to develop a perspective that you don't want to go toe-to-toe with them. You want to be standing shoulder-to-shoulder with them. And it takes a little judo maneuver sometimes because they want you to go toe-to-toe. And one of the reasons why employees do it, complain about you, and one time kids do it as well, is they want to offload some of their culpability for their actions by being so angry at you and blaming you for it. And it's a judo maneuver. There's a whole chapter in my first book, Screen Free Parenting, called Judo Parenting. And it's about taking that and step into the side so you can look at it shoulder to shoulder, which physically actually opens your kids up. You want to talk to a little kid, do not sit down eye to eye, sit down on the floor and play Legos, never look them in the eye, but just, hey, what was that about this? And then they'll open up or as you're driving down the car. But it's this process of saying, I want to help first understand how you're seeing this. So I got to get from your perspective rather than this automatically, like you said at the beginning, taking it personally. I'm sure you've read the four agreements, you know, very, Mm -hmm. very popular book. And what was one of his agreements? Don't take anything personally. Because they're saying far more about themselves than they are about you. So I want to know, what are they actually trying to convey? So I had to develop, and this is something I help leaders do, my own internal pause button. We all complain that people push our buttons. But none of us really ask the good question, well, how did I give them such easy access to my remote control in the first place? What makes my button so easily triggerable? And that's what i got to work on. And so what I needed to do was develop my own personal pause button to give my brain a chance to breathe between stimulus and response. So for me, one of them was, huh, tell me more. Somebody comes with a criticism, huh, tell me more about that, right? Or how about this? Hey, okay, could you say it in another way? And this is just a simple, because I got to lower my heart rate and I got to communicate that I'm approachable, calming myself down calming myself down so that I can hear because as you, and you know this, if an employee or a customer is complaining to you, that's engagement. There's a chance to learn so much more and earn even more of their fidelity. At 49 years old, it's a lesson I've literally learned this year, this year at 40, 49 years into this, how is that try not to pay attention or take personally the first negative impression in an encounter. Because normally I would. I would just say, hey, you don't like me, I don't like you, I'm fine with it. Right. You know, and, and attitude's a mirror. You come to me with a negative attitude, I'm going to be tough enough to actually throw it right back at you. Yep. And a couple times I didn't do it, where I just thought, I'd ah, give the person the benefit of the doubt they're having a bad day, or maybe they read something, or maybe they heard a story about me that was misconstrued. And so I started to go, oh, I'm going to blow that off. I'm actually going to return this with a lot of kindness. Mm-hmm and thoughtfulness. And I'm amazed at how many close friends I've gotten and supporters I've gotten and warm exchanges I've gotten by turning the other cheek a couple times. It's actually just been amazing. And it's not weak. No, no, it's, it's just smart. Exactly. And, and Jesus, you know, who kind of initiated that phrase was obviously brilliant. And the guy behind me in my office here. Gandhi. Is- there's my a poster hero, of Gandhi if you're not watching yes, the video. My hero, because what they recognized is, and this was Gandhi's thing, is Whitman, I think, said this as well. At some level, everyone is my superior or everyone can be my teacher. And if I have that perspective going into every interaction, then I'm looking for that, again, one little nugget I can agree with, constantly thinking about it. And then when you are having a converse, difficult conversation with somebody, what you need to do is think about Uh, listening like Lady Gaga. You know, every recording artist goes into a studio, recording studio, and they have a headset on one ear. You know, they'll take it off like that and they're singing their part. And the reason why they all do that is because they have to have two things going on at the same time. They got to be in harmony with the music, but they got to be in tune with themselves. And so what you're describing is this two conversations at the same time. I'm listening to them as I'm listening to myself, as I'm listening to them, as I'm listening to myself. And what you're Mm -hmm. doing is you're calling yourself down and saying, uh, just hold it for a second. Just pause. Just pause. The leader's pause is your greatest influential machine, is your ability to pause. And that's what you're describing. But the only way I will ever learn to pause is if it becomes my number one priority. Nothing else matters. Not getting this person to do what I told them to do, not trying to get out of this situation. My number one job is to be fully calm and present. 
And guess what? I'm going to have an opportunity to grow that every day of my life. But it's amazing. Everything you described, new friendships with people that I probably wouldn't have ever met, great conversations. It started by not immediately reacting. Because when we react, we're in our animal brain. When we choose to pause, we can actually respond like humans. I just read an article recently about Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and a common characteristic they have called the awkward pause. They will literally sit sometimes for minutes yeah. before they respond to a question. And Jeff Bezos will pass out memos about a, a given issue before a meeting, and he will start the meeting by saying, hey, we're going to take 10 minutes of silence just to read this memo and think about it. And then we'll have a conversation after the 10 minutes. So we'll start a clock and everybody just sits there for 10 minutes in silence, awkward silence. It's beautiful. Before they start. The, it really is very interesting. Well, how some interviews on this podcast are super helpful and others are life-changing. I think this fits in the category of life-changing, at least for me. I'm sure it's true for a bunch of our listeners. If you're interested in more of Hal's thoughts, he's got a few books out. One is called Scream-Free Parenting, How to Raise Amazing Adults by Learning to Pause More and React Less, as well as Scream-Free Marriage and choose your own adulthood. Hal, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, man. JJ, I really mean it. That was a transformational so conversation. good. Yeah. So good. There was so much there. Whenever you hear somebody say something that is true, mm-hmm. and you recognize it deep in your soul, this guy <laughs> realizes yeah. what's going on. And there's also, the truth sets you free, yeah. there's something that's freeing about this idea of I just don't have to control anybody. Yes. I get to control mm-hmm. myself. What was your big takeaway from the conversation? That was the biggest thing for me, is just that sense of where I'm not responsible for their emotions. <laughs> yeah. You know, I even just had a conversation with some friends about this recently who were are fighting each other, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of in the middle mm-hmm. of it, and I just kept saying, all you're responsible for is yourself, your own actions. You're not responsible for theirs. You can only control your own, and so you have to kind of give that up, give up that control when you're in conversation with them. Yeah. And I think I can say that to other people, but knowing... <laughs> Trying to do that for myself is a whole other game changer. I mean, it not only impacts the results of what you get out of the people that you're leading, but it makes your life so much easier. Yes. (laughs) And and, you know, let people struggle, let people fail, realize you could be right. It's the stuff we've heard many, many times, but you know, not necessarily putting an actionable framework the way Mm -hmm. Hal just did that for us. You know, for me, it's that idea of the guide and the hero again. Yeah. And what does the relationship with the guide and the hero look like? The guide cannot jump in the X-Wing fighter and press the (laughs) button that releases the proton torpedo for Luke Skywalker. He can't do that. Luke has to do it for himself. And, you know, the same is true for us as we guide these clients and heroes toward wins, as we guide our team toward personal victories. Yeah. It's a matter I love the idea of standing shoulder to shoulder yes. rather than eye to eye and yes. saying, you know, from my perspective, here are the options that I see available in your life. Here are the consequences for some of the decisions that you're making. Is there any way that I could be of help to you yeah. in your future? Because I, I would never want it said that I didn't give everything I can to help you win. Yeah. That's such a different conversation than without, pull your head out. <laughs> yeah, with, and without telling, I think he said, you know, give them the anxiety or like essentially let them, res- the let them hang the, have the anxiety and responsibility. That idea of I'm not going to show you how to do this, but I'm going to cast a vision for what needs to get done. And I'm going to give you the responsibility and anxiety to get there, yeah. <laughs> really. And, and also let you suffer the consequences. That's the other part about it. Like I think – Some people might go, well, if I just give all this freedom over, then you're not just giving freedom over, you're giving responsibility over. And ultimately, if they take full responsibility for their actions or you allow that to happen, then they are going to also take responsibility for the consequences that happen. It's not just this open book of like, you can do whatever you want. Consequences are still there and that's part of responsibility. You know who I learned this from? Not that she teaches it, but she lives it extremely well, is my wife. Yeah. Betsy. Yeah. I would say before I married Betsy, in the years before I married Betsy, I encountered, had to come face to face with the consequences of trying to control people. Uh (laughs) And there was a repentance involved in that. In a way, there was just a, it's rock bottom. It's just not working. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yep. And then just that realization opened me up to be able to marry a healthy human being. Mm -hmm. But then Betsy is so good at this that I'm able to learn from her. And what's fascinating is, 
you know, we've had very few arguments our entire marriage. The ones that have come up are one of us trying to control the other. What a beautiful conversation. How, mm-hmm. You know, what a gift Hal Runkle was to me and to this audience and to all of us. So thank you again, Hal. JJ, next week, my friend Daniel Harkavy is on the show. Yes. Daniel was one of my business coaches years uh-huh. and years ago. He runs an organization called Building Champions out of Portland, Oregon. And I really wanted to talk to Daniel about how do you manage during stressful, stressful yeah. times. And he's got a book out that really covers all of that, somewhat prophetically wrote it before COVID and the election and all this kind of stuff, but it's just being released as medicine at the perfect time. Here's a little clip from my conversation with Daniel. So what we buy is this lie that we need to have all the answers. Great leaders absolutely know they don't have all the right answers. But what they do know is they surround themselves with the best thinkers. They pull out the best thinking from their team. So throughout the book, I say that leaders must have intentional curiosity. So that will be next week. Mm. Yeah, you and I will have to unpack that. Mm-hmm. And before we close, just a reminder of two things. One, the Building a Story Brand podcast will be changing its name and a little bit of the format. It's going to be there's going to be some new voices on the podcast. The new name will be Business Made Simple. It's the Business Made Simple podcast. That happens in January. You will still be subscribed, but when you start hearing us say Business Made Simple, Don and JJ co-hosting, don't think we jumped ship to another company. We just changed the name of the podcast. I also have a book called Business Made Simple coming out in January. I know that's a long way away, but you're going to want to pre-order it as soon as possible so that you have zero chance of missing it. When the book comes to you, it is 60 daily entries that I think are more valuable than a business degree. 60 daily entries that you read and you get an email every day in which I explain that daily entry. So you're getting the wisdom from two different vehicles to make sure that you metabolize the information and can put it to use scaling up your company. It's about a $20 book, but I hope it makes you 20,000, if not 200,000, if not $200 million, the practical information in it. I just don't think we should go to college, pay all that money for a degree, and still not know how to grow a business. You are 60 days from being competent in growing a business. Just pre-order Business Made Simple on Amazon today and make sure you don't miss out. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy. And creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Mm